Five by Fifteen Vancouver features five stellar speakers speaking for fifteen minutes each on a topic they're passionate about. Each fifteen-minute episode is a glimpse into a world. Five by Fifteen Vancouver was presented by SFU Library, supported by SFU Publishing, and created in association with Five by Fifteen, a global speaker series. Special thanks to our founding partner, Simon Fraser University, major partners, Langara College and University of British Columbia. Media partners, the Georgia Strait, CBC and Spice Radio, and our funders, Government of Canada, City of Vancouver, Vancouver Foundation, and British Columbia Arts Council. Welcome to 5 by 15 Vancouver. Shachi Curl can be found offering analysis on CBC's At Issue, Canada's most watched political panel, in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Globe and Mail, and on the editorial pages of the Ottawa Citizen. As the executive director of the Angus Reid Institute, Canada's non-profit foundation committed to independent research, she works with public opinion data to further public knowledge and enhance the national understanding of issues that matter to Canada and the world. Here she tells you, I know what you think about immigration. Wow, you stayed. So you stayed for Arthur and I. You like us. You really like us. I'm not. This is water down here. I should have put some gin in it. <laughs> Sonia, I need to update my bio because occasionally I come on with Evan Solomon on CTV too. Yeah, there you go. We've come to expect origin stories of Canadian immigrants to be romantic, like Shrisha's story, or dramatic, like Kamal's story, or traumatic. Light from conflict, first steps into a new culture, Canada as a deliberate destination, a conscious choice, a love affair. For my parents, and they're here tonight, Mama, Papa, je vous aime, it was an accidental affection. It was allergies. Specifically, a violent and terrible allergic reaction to ragweed. By the time they drove up to the Peace Arch border crossing all those years ago, they'd already lived in the West. They'd been in the UK, they'd been in the US, but the American dream was not to be for my parents. My father's teaching options limited him to universities in the Midwest, which limited him to some pretty terrible health. So he and my mother packed up the Mustang, stuck my baby, well, she was a baby, my big sister in the back. They weren't really conscious of seatbelts in those days. Drove like demons. Got to Vancouver. The beauty of the Coast Mountains was a strong selling point, but it was the crisp, fresh, marine air wafting from the Pacific. That's what sealed the deal. My story of Canada is a story of a choice that was already made for me. I was among the first generations that was raised and educated under the auspices of this little policy called official multiculturalism. 
Now, when you're little, you're not alive to the importance of it. You just know that your school is packed with a bunch of kids whose parents or who themselves were born somewhere else. You don't care. Sometimes you eat different foods. Sometimes you worship different gods. Sometimes on special occasions, you wear different clothes. It's all cool. It's cool. We were all playing My Little Ponies anyway. But multiculturalism brought some deliberate actions. We were deliberately introduced to our nation's institutions. There was that time they brought the RCMP into school to take pictures with us. And I remember my Mountie, he had a mustache and a Stetson and a Crimson Surge. And I had a pink Lega and a, and a bob cut and a really toothy smile. And it was very sweet. But multiculturalism, crazy like a fox. It was doing something else. It was introducing to kids, predominantly visible minorities, to an institution that doesn't always benefit from a tremendous amount of trust, especially among visible minorities. Multiculturalism policy has helped solidify a sense of place for people who in other countries, in France, in Britain, in Germany, are often living on the margins. In Canada, it brings everyone into the center. It has provided a sense of parity. You know, the last decades, by design, have revealed Canada to be a place where newcomers settle in fairly well. Due to the point system, we find immigrants to have higher rates of employment, higher rates of education, especially among Canadian-born residents. We're fairly, in a relative sense, prosperous. In this Metro Vancouver, one of the most expensive real estate regions anywhere in North America, the average value of a home owned by an immigrant is about 20% higher than it is among those who are Canadian-born residents. What am I trying to say? In general, our newcomers are educated, they're working, they're financially well-off, relative to a lot of other OECD countries. And yet, yet, for the first time in decades, Despite what is arguably a success story, we find Canadian public opinion favoring less immigration to this country, not more. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but I just want to point out and note that, you know, the, the theme for this festival is tricksters, oracles, magicians, and despite what you've heard about my industry, pollsters are none of the above. <laughs> we don't conjure the numbers. Double, double, toil and trouble, what will I come up with today? <laughs> I do not have a crystal ball in my handbag. We deal with realities, but they are realities in time. We deal with certainties, but certainties are always shifting. I think the write-up about me refers to me as a polling pundit. I'm not a pundit. 
The only Bandit in my family was my Dadaji, my grandfather, Bandit Nun Kishore Curl. I'm just the nosy girl who asks questions all the time and tells you all their answers. And we do it to ensure that everyone has access to the data and the information that hasn't been massaged and influenced by the true magicians and tricksters, the politicians and the spin doctors. So, why this swing of the pendulum to a harder, more skeptical place around immigration? You know, I don't think everyone is necessarily as comfortable with the changing face of Canada, and it is literally changing. Census 2016 tells us that the number of visible minorities in this country roughly equals the population of Quebec. By 2036, one in three people in this country is projected to have been born outside of this country. That said, it is not wholly surprising when two-thirds of the country says that newcomers need to do more to fit in. Conversations of assimilation and integration aren't new. We've been having those forever. Ever since, as Kamal mentioned, the, the, the Ukrainian princess in Winnipeg with the name Barkowski, that, that, was, that was a story of, of integration and assimilation as well. Just a little bit different skin tone. So what gives? I do have a hypothesis. And I think it does explain, particularly in the last two years, why we have seen a shift and a change among the Canadian population on this very important issue. The first, summer of 2015, Canadians are galvanized. They are gripped by the horror they are seeing every night on the television. CTV, of course, <laughs> or on the social media, or in the newspaper, they still had those four years ago, about the horrors unfolding on the Mediterranean Sea and an unprecedented refugee crisis that we had not seen, the likes of which we had not seen since the Second World War. Until we saw the very disturbing image of Alan Kurdi wash up on the shores of Bodrum in Turkey. Canadians were actually divided over whether we had a role to play here by bringing people to the country or by helping them find a place of peaceful settlement elsewhere. Until we saw that photo, at which point Canadians demanded action. There was an election campaign going on. And all of a sudden, we were into a game of up the ante among our federal political leaders over who was going to do what faster and how many were going to come. 10,000 by next March. No, 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 25,000 by the end of the year. No, 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 40,000 by next month. Well, we know how that election turned out, but what we might have forgotten was actually the promise to bring that first wave of 25,000 within two months. And 
Once the honeymoon and the euphoria had passed, people started asking questions going, you know, isn't this a very tight timeline? And at the time, half of those opposed to the resettlement of our refugees pointed to those tight timelines as the reason they were opposed. They were worried about security. They were worried about vetting. This was a key moment for our political leadership to take a moment and explain things. Explain, communicate, talk. Instead, what we got was rhetoric. Instead, the then Premier of Ontario at the time talked about how concerns and talking about these concerns was tapping into what she called a racist vein. In the end, the federal government did extend those timelines, whether because they were tapping themselves into a racist vein or because their bureaucrats simply explained, sorry, you can't do this this quickly. But that wasn't the only example. Two years later, people started walking across the border, walking away from their concerns about what the Trump administration was about to do to them. And again, initially, Canadians wanted to help. It brought out the best of us. Who can forget the image of the Mountie lifting this little girl in a pink coat over the borderline? And he's smiling at her and she's smiling at him. We're going, oh gosh, we're so nice, we're Canadians. We're gonna bring them all in. It's gonna be awesome. And then there was the tweet. Our prime minister on social media regardless of your religion and what you're going through, yada, yada, yada. Diversity is our strength, yada, yada. Hashtag welcome to Canada. By the next summer, tens of thousands were walking across the border and Canadians were asking questions like, eh, what's going on? Are we, are, are we prepared to deal with this? Have we started dealing with this? How are we going to process these folks? Who are they? Where are they coming from? And again, we had an opportunity to talk to Canadians and say, look, this is what's going on. And yeah, maybe we were caught a little bit off guard and maybe de facto inviting everyone to come on up was not the best thing to do. But instead, we were met with polarizing, defensive conversation and messaging. Today, it's probably unknown that just 15% of the people who come into this country fall under the refugee and humanitarian class. 28% come under family class. The majority, the rest, 57% are economic class immigrants. They are people who come to work and to take jobs, but you wouldn't know that based on the conversations that we're having in this country today and the level to which they've descended. You're a racist. You're soft on public safety. You don't know what you're talking about. This is what it's coming down to. And yet, let me explain something. We're not having enough babies to sustain our way of life. And Pico will appreciate this. There are not enough robots being built in this country to sustain our way of life. Japan may have this figured out. Canada does not. 
We like to have nice things. We like to have pensions, and we really like our health care, and we like our transit systems, and we like our community centers. This is a very nice community center. You want those things. We need immigration. You want to maintain public support for immigration. You need to be able to have open and honest conversations and people need to be reminded of the benefits of it. I'm speaking to a room full of people who, who probably don't represent the two-thirds who are a little bit concerned about rising immigration levels at this point. But they're there. They're your neighbors, they're your friends, they're your cousins, they're your in-laws. They're good people. They're not bad people just need to be reminded. We cannot rely and presume that there will be a perpetual and forever support for immigration in this country. Not with the conversations that are happening south of the border, not with the conversations and the political changes that are coming and are already here in Europe. We can no more take it for granted than I can take for granted the gift that my parents bestowed upon me by choosing to live here. Fresh air and no allergies and all. It's a gift that I recognize every time I board a flight home. It's a gift that I recognize when I flash my Canadian passport and I give thanks for being a woman here and not in most of the other countries of the world. I feel it when we raise the flag as we did just a few days ago on July 1st and give thanks for the relative ease with which we live our lives. No war, no corruption, a civil society that works mostly the way it's supposed to. We have a gift to bestow on people who don't live and enjoy the gifts that we have. We can share it. But we also have a responsibility to ensure that we continue to have the nice things with immigration that sustains our tax base and keeps our labor market moving. We can do both. Immigration is the key to both. But it is really, really easy to forget that. So we have to be, we must be, emphatically and frequently and often and rationally and persuasively reminded of that. And I hope tonight I've had an opportunity to remind you of that. So thank you.